Tonight's talk is entitled Awakening from the Dream. And we started with a short meditation and we'll end with another just as a way of exploring more deeply how can we wake up out of thoughts? And that's kind of what we'll be uh, going, uh, reviewing the different ways it's possible and ending with the meditation so you have a chance to experiment again and then if you have questions to ask them. So at the heart of most spiritual traditions I've ever heard of, there's an honoring of being states. There's an honoring of the experience of presence, that which is mystical and timeless and sacred. And each of these paths has practices, and they vary. Some are dancing, and some are chanting, and some are prayer, and some are meditation, and some are vision quests in nature. But all spiritual paths have practices that help us to open up to these being states that we intuitively cherish. This waking up is not a becoming someone different. The idea is not to change ourselves so much as in a way to return or remember who we are in our most essential state, our most natural or original self. So the question behind most practices that I've run into and the question that inspired the Buddha is how can we free ourselves from the suffering or the burden that we encounter day by day where we're forgetting, the burden of feeling small or preoccupied or deficient in some way. How can we wake up out of that? And the common denominator, and this is true for Buddhist practices, and again, so many faiths around the world, the common denominator is in some way learning to open out of thoughts. Not to not think, not to not value thinking, but to open out of them and have access to the world that is not defined by and described by our thought realms. There's a challenge for us in the West that is not quite so great in Asia, which is that Western civilization, we really worship thinking. Do you know what I mean? At least I come from a family that it was the thing we bowed to, the rational mind. We really accept that the thinking mind is the descriptor of how it is. We accept that reality for the most part and, and operate out of it. Now, to say from the start that thinking is totally natural, like the circulation of blood and the production of hormones and enzymes and anything else, the mind produces thoughts. Thinking is also sometimes beautiful. It's totally necessary. It's the source of so many profound benefits in terms of uh, creative expression and communication. So many of the comforts and the things that have made our lives a lot easier come from the thinking mind. Certainly, it's the foundation of any organizing and possibility of civilization as we know it. Some of you know that Gandhi was asked what he thought about Western civilization. He said he thought it would be a good idea. <laughs> 
thinking can be used skillfully. It can be used skillfully in the service of spiritual awakening. As with the metta, you know, using thoughts of care to evoke and connect us with the place where we really live and love. And thinking can be quite unskillful. The problem that goes on is that thoughts are not the source of what we most value. Thinking is not the source of our loving and our creativity. It's just not where it all comes from. It's like the finger pointing to the moon, being mistaken for the moon. We get attached to thinking when it's not really the thinking that takes us there. This is Emerson. He writes, within us is the soul of the whole. When it breaks through our intellect, it is genius. When it breathes through our will, it is virtue. When it flows through our affections, it is love. Thinking can be a vehicle. It's not the source. There's a lot of suffering when we get attached to it as being that. So in meditation, the instructions, as you know, are to recognize when we're thinking. Recognize it, name it, and come back. We either come back to the breath or if the thoughts have a lot of charge, we we drop into what's underneath them and touch into what's real right there. When we do this, when we actually practice this and don't stay totally lost in thoughts, but instead connect with what's there, we discover that the cause for thinking, the cause for the movement of our mind, is dissatisfaction. Our minds move out of our wants. They're in service of our wants to plan or worry or figure out how we can get what we want on this earth. They're in service of our fears. Again, planning and worrying so that what we're afraid that's bad won't happen. Watch your thoughts. If you really look into them, they are, for a huge percentage of them, are in service of wanting and fearing. It's said that what we want is both endless excitement and perfect peace at once. (laughs) So we try to solve the problems of life through thinking, and we try to find answers through our thoughts. There's some of you have heard of Mullah Nasruddin, who's a Sufi wise man and fool, and there's a lot of teaching stories based on his life. And in one, he's outside and he's looking all around the ground, and, and a friend comes up and says, Mullah, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my keys. I lost them. And so his friend starts scraping around on the ground looking also, and finally says, well, where'd you last see them? And he said, oh, inside. So, well, what are we doing out here? He said, oh, the lamplight's out here. They're much brighter, you know. (laughs) So we look in the wrong places, don't we? I get interested in some of the biographies of famous scientists who describe how they came upon their life discoveries and... Einstein described it that it was through a lot of meditation and reflection that the basic principles of relativity and all his major breakthroughs came from. 
And then he said he'd spend the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years using the thinking process and language to try to communicate and explain them to people. You know, but the ahas, the real deep ahas, they don't come because we think things through. They're intuitive, meditative awakenings. Einstein wrote, how do I work? I grope. So one of the most fundamental set of thoughts that we operate off of are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, And they're created out of the expectations and messages of our parents and the culture at large. As we know, when we start really looking in, a lot of those self-concepts are fear-based. There's a, a sign I've mentioned to some of you that up at IMS on one of the Bolden boards, this is a retreat center, and it says, self-knowledge is not good news, <laughs> you know. Our Lily Tomlin writes, I, want, I wanted to be somebody, but I wish I had been more specific, you know. We, we're not so satisfied with this being that we discover. So we go around as a self, basic self-concept with some sense of not good enough or not okay. You remember Jules Pfeiffer, he wrote, I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's walk, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. So we have this basic sense of unworthiness, and we can go in different directions with it. We build a lot of stories about what's wrong with us, as I mentioned, and we do it in some way because it's familiar then. You know, a lot of people will hold on to what's familiar even if it's painful, or because we don't want to get disappointed by finding out worse news or something. So we go around perpetuating the stories of what's wrong. And sometimes we go in the other direction and and try to present this it's very, a lot of grandiosity. It's got that bragging quality of what's, what's right. And again, it's compensating for some basic sense of insecurity. And we get pushed up against the wall by our parents and our society because there's some expectation that will um, some way present something that others will like. This is an essay and it was written by a high school student in his application to college, and it's something that Jack Cornfield read at the New Year's retreat, and I think you might like this. It really gives you a sense of what, to what ends our society drives us to. Dear friends in the admissions department, how can I describe myself? I am a dynamic figure often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees at times. I have written award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. I can tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. <laughs> I am an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon from a horde of ferocious ants. I play bluegrass cello and was scouted by the Mets. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my backyard and enjoy urban hand gliding. 
On Wednesday after, Wednesdays after school, I repair electrical appliances free of charge. I am an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I bat 400. Children trust me. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish the entire dining room. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket, and I have performed covert operations for the CIA. I sleep, but only infrequently and usually in a chair. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I've made extraordinary four-course meals using only a toaster oven. <laughs> I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and a spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've played Hamlet, I've performed open heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis. But, I, <laughs> but I've not yet gone to college. Please consider accepting me. <laughs> 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 so we go to great extremes sometimes to try to convince the world we're okay. I have a friend that described that when he's feeling bad, he asks himself the question, what story am I believing right now about a negative self? What is the idea or belief about a deficient sense of self that I'm hooked on? It's a really a good one. Try that out. When you're feeling bad, there's usually deep down some sense of something's wrong with me that you're buying into at the time. So it's an important exploration for each of us. What are our stories? We can't find them out when we're in the middle of them. It takes, ah, thinking, thinking, and stepping out a bit and saying, what is it? What am I believing in? Do I have this belief that if I get too happy, something bad will happen? Or that I don't deserve anything unless I've really worked incredibly hard? That nothing I do is really good enough? That if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me? If I experience pain, physical pain or emotional pain, it's my fault. Something's wrong with me. I'm basically selfish, you know? There's so many stories. And so many of us, when we feel fear or vulnerability or anger, wrap that in a belief that it's something wrong with me for feeling it. I shouldn't be feeling these things. The Buddha describes suffering not as pain, but as the way we resist pain with our stories of what's wrong. That basic sense that what's happening is not okay. So there's a lot of waking up possible if we're willing to look at the way we resist the pain in our life, the day-to-day -day pains and the big ones. I've mentioned here at other talks how over these last couple of years I've been experiencing a lot of chronic sickness. And especially when I went to a retreat a few months ago, I was there for, for a whole month and I got very, very sick. So I got a great opportunity to watch my own mind as I was sick. And it was amazing how with every time I'd feel another wave of pain, I'd immediately flip into some notion of I'm bad, I'm insufficient, I'm inadequate on an emotional, spiritual level, or why would I be still sick, you know? It's really amazing to me 
how quickly we go from the bare experience of sensations into a storyline that makes us wrong. It's in our culture that there's something bad about pain, there's something embarrassing about getting old and embarrassing about dying. It's a shame, it's a shame thing that these natural processes actually happen to us. This is written by Bertrand Russell. The late F. W. H. Myers used to tell how he asked a man at the dinner table what he thought would happen to him when he died. The man tried to ignore the question, but on being pressed, replied, Oh well, I suppose I shall inherit eternal bliss, but I wish you wouldn't talk about such unpleasant subjects. (laughs) So we're conditioned to run stories when we encounter pain about what's wrong with us. And oddly, when we encounter or intuit what's really beautiful about us, our generosity or our love, our creativity, so quickly we contract back away from it. We, we compare ourselves to others or in some way deny or put ourselves down in the face of that. Others do more. I'm not really that good. Our worst fear, writes Nelson Mandela, is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God within us. It is not just in some of us. It is in everyone, and as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. In fact, thinking too well of people often allows them to behave better than they otherwise would. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So we very quickly reside in stories about what's wrong with us and very quickly refuse to see our nature, our power, our grace, our beauty. It's part of what happens when we live in our thoughts about things. Carolyn May says that our spirit goes off in deficiency stories and thoughts, and it takes our energy away from presence, from living, from loving, and from healing. That's just another way to think of it. Every time we're off in thoughts, which is most of the day for most of us, and those thoughts are the kind of thoughts that contract us, which is a lot of the time for many of us, Our spirit is not right here, living in the moment, loving in the moment, creating in the moment. Perhaps one of the stories that we get most lost in is that we're actually on our way somewhere. We're not right here tonight, but tonight's on our way to enough meditation classes so we really know how to meditate. (coughs) 
or on our way to spring vacation or on our way to something, we in some way make less of what's going on right now because we feel around the corner that's when the good life's going to happen or there's something we really need to deal with. Or now is not really given centrality. This is beautifully illustrated in a short essay called The Station by Robert Hastings. Tucked away in our subconscious is an idyllic vision. We see ourselves on a long trip that spans the continent. We are traveling by train. Out the windows, we drink in the passing scene of cars on nearby highways, of children waving at a crossing, of cattle grazing on distant hillside, of smoke pouring from a power plant, mountains, rolling hillsides, city skylines. But uppermost in our minds is the final destination. On a certain day, at a certain hour, we will pull into the station. Bands will be playing and flags waving. Once we get there, so many wonderful dreams will come true, and the pieces of our lives will fit together like a completed jigsaw puzzle. How restlessly we pace the aisles, cursing the minutes for loitering, waiting, waiting, waiting for the station. When we reach the station, that will be it, we cry. When I'm 18, when I buy a new 450 SL Mercedes-Benz, when I put the last kid through college, when I've paid off the mortgage, when I lose 20 pounds, when I get a promotion, when I reach the age of retirement, I shall live happily ever after. Sooner or later, we must realize there is no station, no one place to arrive at once and for all. The true joy of life is the trip. The station is only a dream. It constantly outdistances us. Relish the moment is a good motto, especially when coupled with Psalm 118.24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It isn't the burdens of today that drive men mad. It is the regrets over yesterday and the fear of tomorrow. Regret and fear are twin thieves who rob us of being today. So stop pacing the aisles and counting the miles. Instead, climb more mountains, eat more ice cream, go barefoot more often, swim more rivers, watch more sunsets, laugh more. Life must be lived as we go along. The station will come soon enough. So this is our practice recognizing the dreams or ideas that we're living out of and coming right back here in a very full-hearted, immediate way to touch what's true. There's a lot of suffering when we're lost in our thoughts. It comes in two basic ways that I've mentioned. One is that when we're in our thoughts, we're busy elsewhere and life passes us by. We don't get to live it. The second is When we're invested and believe in our thoughts, what we're believing in are little frozen fragments, representations of what life is. We're believing in a very small and limited sense of self and world. The Buddha said that there is great freedom when we cease to cherish beliefs. So, how to discover this freedom? How in a very practical way do we open out of thoughts because the conditioning is so strong to be lost a lot of the time. The first, which we have talked about a lot in here, 
has to do with training the mind to concentrate in a very practical way because we are so inclined to not be steady in our attention we choose either the breath our sounds or it can be the sensations in our body and train ourselves to recollect to come back it's a muscle in the mind it's an incredible gift when we begin to train ourselves to have that muscle and really takes daily practice takes the practice of literally sitting and being quiet and when the mind goes off go ah it's off again and coming back to touch the next breath we use the breath primarily because it's so universal we're always breathing and so it's something always to come back to and really is a connection of body and mind so that is one of the most pervasive anchors chosen by many uh, cultures but sounds also people find are sometimes you can't get to the breath there's so much distraction and when you're listening to sounds it's it's harder to get lost in thought because you don't usually listen to sounds and think at the same time because of our conditioning everybody gets lost a lot in any given sitting um you're not alone if you feel like you've been preoccupied we all go off so it takes a whole lot of patience in fact st francis de sales says it takes a cup of understanding a barrel of love and an ocean of patience he continues to write this bring yourself back to the point quite gently and even if you do nothing during the whole of your hour but bring your heart back a thousand times though it went away every time you brought it back your hour would be very well employed there's a beauty to learn to learning to come back to the breath or to sound the mind starts getting steady it develops a laser like a penetrating quality because it can aim itself and we get quieter the idea is not to get rid of thoughts but if we're lost to them if there's no spaces in between we don't get to sense the whole the ocean the fullness of our being and our existence so as we begin to gain some mastery in concentration there's a real sense of peace that comes with that of really ah i'm here i'm actually here what helps us in concentration practice and what helps us in coming back is the use of noting and this is um quite simply a soft background note we can use it with thinking just to say thinking thinking we can use the noting more precisely if we want saying remembering planning worrying the purpose of the noting is to almost on a cellular level deepen the recognition of what's happening when you name it you more fully get it's happening and you're no longer the thought shape of the thought itself you're the awareness that's doing the recognizing that is the power of noting one person wrote we don't know who discovered water but we are certain it wasn't a fish <laughs> we cannot understand the nature of our mind if we're lost in thoughts So what we recognize when we begin to have that capacity to step outside of and see what's going on 
really first is that distraction is the mind's natural movement. It just naturally goes off into it. It's kind of like a crazed monkey or what, for me, it seems like kind of a TV set that's out of control and just flips from station to station. And some of them are interesting and seem real useful, but a lot of them are just little blips and then it keeps changing channels and there's no way to control it. In fact, what we realize is that we don't own our thoughts. They're just happening. They're not possessed. They have their own nature, their own conditioning, just like the weather. This is from Saturday Night Live. My son likes it a lot. (laughs) That's a warning to you. (laughs) I hope some animal never bores a hole in my head and lays its eggs in my brain, because later you might think you're having a good idea, but it's just eggs hatching. (laughs) He's 10 years old, so (laughs) that explains some. So thoughts, like dreams, are uninvited, They're not to be judged. Some are useful. Many we're lost in, and they cause us suffering. With practice, we develop a steadiness of attention where there's some quieting of thoughts, and we have some capacity to say, ah, yes, this one is useful. Let me see where it needs to go and and guide me and so on. But a lot of the time, it gives us the freedom to step out and say, no, I'm not going to invest any more energy in something that keeps my world and my sense of self small. And that is a power. That is a pathway to freedom, not just when we're sitting in formal practice, but if through our day we can ask that question, you know, what's going on now? Ah, thinking, you know. And if there's, a, if there's a value to it, to honor it and be with it. But if not, and a lot of times there's not, to have the choice to come back and breathe and smell things and listen and be with the person we're with fully, not lost in thought. This noting that we do when we're in formal practice or through the day needs to be very gentle and very friendly. In fact, the way you note will be a conditioning for the next moment of experience. So if it's, ah, thinking with interest and care and, ah, what's next, that'll be there. But if it's judgmental, oh, I'm lost again, God, I'll never make it as a meditator, you know, I'm just, I'm a loser. You know, that's the conditioning for the next moment. So when the mind's busy and there's there's very little focus at all, we use the breath or sound a lot to steady it. When there's a little quieting down, or when the thoughts are very, very persistent, there's some real energy to it, we don't go back to the breath. And this is the second part. I said the first part's to learn to concentrate. The second part in working with thoughts is to be able to sense, ah, what is underneath this thought? If it's one of the top 10 and it keeps on, you know, waving, through your mind and calling your attention, then the question is, what's asking for acceptance? What wants attention inside me? That, too, can be quite a valuable inquiry. It's not intellectual. It's not mental. When you say, what's under this thought, you're not figuring out, well, my father abandoned me emotionally when I was 12, and therefore, it's not one of those things. It's more, What's going on in my heart and my body right now? Oh, fear, contraction, tightness, tension. 
sadness, grief, you know, just to really feel into what is there right now. So these are the two places of training to learn to concentrate the mind, to have that capacity to call ourselves back out of thought, and the capacity to touch what's under thought in a direct and immediate way. Now just as an exercise for a moment, if you will, just close your eyes and and reflect on something that's, this is very short, you don't have to sit up too straight. Just reflect for a moment on something that's difficult in your life right now. Not extraordinarily, but just something that's bothersome, disturbing. And let the thought and the feelings around it be there. And then sense that there's Oh, about 60 other people in this room with you also thinking about difficult and disturbing things. And, and as you sense that, just let the awareness open to include that awareness. And then just touch exactly what's true for you in this moment. Just feel your body in an honest way. And just register what's there. And coming back, our practice is to know that thinking's happening so that we open up to a broader perspective. Sometimes at retreats, uh, one of the things that is told to the students sitting at retreats is, just for fun, is to imagine that all the thoughts that have been going on in your head for the last few days or whatever are actually happening inside the head of the person in front of you. You're sitting with somebody right in front of you. All this, all this stuff's going on right in this person. And it's actually quite a useful perspective. So there's freedom when we don't take it so personally. It's like all of us here are contemplating something difficult or struggling with this or wanting that. There's room in our hearts and minds when we don't take it so personally. It's like that adage, why do angels fly? Because they don't, because because they take themselves lightly. Remember that one. <laughs> so not believing or investing in our thoughts, and instead, instead of investing in our thoughts, subscribing to what's right here and immediate and alive and true. Many people know the experience when you're sitting of when you realize you've been lost in thought of a sense of real vitality, of real presence, of coming back. And it's very pronounced if you're, let's say, off in nature hiking and you realize you've been kind of drifting in thoughts and all of a sudden, ah, what's here, this moment, this green leaf or that, the sky or the feeling of the breeze on my cheek. It can be very pronounced when we come back in certain situations or when we're with somebody we care about and we realize we've been anticipating what they're going to say or planning our response and we just drop it all with that resolve, I just am going to be here with you. It's the only way intimacy can happen, to come out of our thoughts and into our hearts and our bodies. The mind thinks of itself as separate. Thoughts distinguish and judge and higher and lower and you and me and self and other. 
The heart knows better. Sri Nirsargadatta writes, the mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. So our practice is not to empty the mind. As I mentioned, there's, there's room and, and value to skillful thinking, but to begin to know what's happening so we have the freedom to choose and to not live bound in a reality that's small and limited. To recognize unskillful thoughts and stories is actually an essential part of any emotional healing we do. Because it's the habitual and limiting thoughts that keep feeding the wounds. And it's not until we recognize them and open out of them that we can actually pay attention to, bring compassion and touch the very wounds that we have been perpetuating with our thoughts. I'll tell you a brief story. It's several months ago, a friend of mine went through a very painful breakup, and it brought up all her stories about what did I do to drive him away? I'm a failure. How can I get him back? And she just was obsessing on these stories, and she also practices meditation. So the stories needed a certain amount of airtime. There was nothing she could do. Even though she knew she was caught up in stories, they just had to play out a certain amount. But after a while, she started taking some pauses and doing just what we're talking about, just saying, okay, painful story, story about what a failure I am, story about what's wrong with me, story about what's wrong with him. You know, she'd start naming it and gradually touching in to the enormity of the grief and to the loneliness that was even under that. And she said that was, that was the shift in the tides, when she could sense the stories and, and touch in a very immediate way that sense of loneliness. And with that, she said, when I could really open big enough for that loneliness, because the loneliness was so great, my heart was big enough for all the rest of it. And so it is with all of our healing, the edge, the place that's so hard for us, If we can really open in our bodies and become big enough for that, our hearts are big enough for our lives then. It's the only way to heal is to include. Chogyam Trungpa puts it this way, you have to go beyond the words and the conceptualized ideas and just get into what you are deeper and deeper. The first glimpse is not enough. You have to examine experience without judging, without using words and concepts. Opening to oneself fully is opening to the world. So this is the Buddha's response to suffering. How do we wake up? How do we wake up out of the dream? We practice presence. We start knowing that we're in the dream bit by bit. Just as we wake up in the morning and we gradually, when our bodies let go of it, really sense a much more refreshing and immediate reality and know that we are in a dream, so it is with our ordinary waking state that there is a freedom that we can touch when we wake up out of that that is really the deepest expression of our own heart's love and wisdom. And it's possible in each one of us. And all it takes is the care and interest and resolve moment by moment to begin to practice. Ah, what's true right now? Am I lost in thoughts? How can I touch this moment with my full heart and mind? So I'd like to end with a 
poem by Rumi. When I see you and how you are, I turn my eyes away from the other. For your solemn and seal, I become wax throughout my body. I wait to be light. I give up opinions on all matters. I become the reed flute for your breath. You were something, you were inside my hand, but I kept reaching around for something. I was inside your hand, but I kept asking questions of those who knew very little. I must have been incredibly simple or drunk or insane to climb into my own house and steal money, to climb over the fence and take my own vegetables, but no more. I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. So let's take a few moments to stretch our legs and then just sit and sit in a way where we can just practice a bit opening out of thoughts.